sabbaticals. Why do some businesses actually pay for their people to take a break and enjoy a little travel? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we'll consider how travel can deepen our understanding of the world around us and the world inside us. An extended visit to another culture can provide a much-needed jumpstart to your work. With this in mind, many employers encourage sabbaticals. Okay, you're taking a break. How and where you spend your sabbatical determines its success. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll visit with a pastor and a professor. They'll offer their own insights into the value of a sabbatical. But I really have an understanding of sabbatical that it's not to be a vacation. It's really an opportunity to do the things that when you're in the normal working day, you really don't have an opportunity to do. And we invite your calls to explore what you've accomplished with a journey away from your workaday life. Your travel stories and planning for a sabbatical. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. A sabbatical can be the opportunity of a lifetime. This extended break from your daily routine can lead to great professional enrichment. But the chance to recharge with some travel and study abroad requires careful planning to be sure you get the most out of your time away. Coming up later this hour, we'll get some sound advice on planning for a sabbatical, allowing a little travel to redirect or recharge your life. But before we get started talking about sabbaticals, let's open the phones and get your stories. You know that it doesn't take an exotic adventure to make some significant discoveries. What kinds of surprises have you encountered in your travels? We'd like to hear from you at 877-333-RICK or by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Welcome aboard to Travel with Rick Steves. Carolyn, on the line in Calhoun, Georgia. Hi, Carolyn. Hello, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, We went to Egypt on an organized tour, but it's a company that allows you quite a bit of free time. It's not so structured. I think that'd be important if you're visiting Egypt. Absolutely. Um, We had just a wonderful experience, and a lot of it was due to your shows, you know, saying be open-minded, you know, get to know the people. Right. They had an organized tour going to Alexandria. We'd already been there. So uh, two other couples and us asked our resident guide, you know, what would be good within about a two-mile walk of our hotel. And he gave us a couple suggestions. And one of them was the American University in Cairo has a beautiful botanical gardens. And my husband is interested in gardens. So we decided to go over there. Having no idea of where this thing was, we asked a very well-dressed Egyptian if he knew where it was. He was heading into the university, and he said, well, I'll show you exactly where it is. <laughs> it wound up that he was a professor there at the university. He was an archaeologist. He was our guide for the entire day. He brought us not only into the university, showed us a private art exhibit that the students were putting on, the gardens and all that had to go with that, but asked us if we were interested in Egyptian archaeology and history and religion, and, of course, we all said, yes, 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 yes. Huh. He um, said, well, would you like to come to my, some of my excavations? Of course, we kind of all looked at each other and said, well, he's well-dressed, he's a professor, let's, you know, take him up on this. He brought us through the subways, thank goodness um, he was with us. We went through the subways of underground Egypt, and there were no tourists. There, there was, wow. it, was, it was us and the Egyptians over to a church that was the called the Saint Mina. It's a fifth-century church that was over some of the caves where they believe Mary and Joseph hid during their exile in Egypt. Hmm. He showed us rooms of icons that normally only are open to dignitaries. He asked someone to get a key, and he brought us up to these little rooms, and the uh, old icons were there. He walked us through. A, so these um, are early Coptic Christian oh, sort of absolutely. sites. absolutely. And he, then he brought us to a Coptic cemetery. See, a lot of people don't realize that there's a thriving Christian community in uh, ancient times in Egypt that you can visit to the remains of today. The, yes, yeah. And even the cemetery was wonderful wow. that he, you know, explained some of the, the tombs and what was there and, you know, parts of Egypt that you don't see you know, on any organized well, tour. Well, you hit the jackpot we, by skipping out of the tour uh, visit for Alexandria and asking the right professor for directions, <laughs> and he took you under his wing, and uh, you had that intimate experience. Oh, it was it was just wonderful. And, and he not only brought us through the Coptic 
cemetery, he brought us through the real market, yeah. where the Egyptians shop in the open-air market. Oh, is that in Old Cairo? In Old Cairo. And we saw it was right before Ramadan. Of course, this was January, right before the war started. Mm-hmm. And we were going through the market, and goats and sheep were being herded through the market and then up into the houses. You know, it's amazing. Boy, they stayed on the roof. I haven't been in Egypt for uh, 15 years or something, and it <gasps> sounds like it hasn't changed. I mean, the, the uh, oh, vividness is probably just as good today. Yes, it is. It oh, is. My, yeah. my goodness. Well, thanks, Carolyn, for your uh, inspirational story about Egypt. Did you feel comfortable as an American there? Absolutely. All right. Uh, um, we learned some Egyptian before we went. Uh, there's a website where you can speak it and repeat and so we learn, you know, shukran, you know, the good old thank you, and, sure. you know, good morning, and, and that helps a lot. You know, a smile and a, and a word makes uh, a big difference. And you were there in the dead of winter, which made it more comfortable from a climate point of view? Oh, absolutely. I got to go inside the pyramids and oh. didn't have to suffocate. Yeah, sounds good. All right, Carolyn, well, uh, call us again sometime when you've got some more travel stories. Fantastic. Bye we now. leave Thursday for Peru. Peru, all right. <laughs> well, you're quite a traveler. Okay. Thanks. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. And we got uh, Leah on the line in Buffalo, New York. Hi, Leah. Hi, Rick. I spent 2004 uh, traveling for a bit in Europe, and when I was doing that, I worked for about three months on a farm with a family in Sicily. So I did various tasks. Uh, you know, we planted, and we baked bread, and we harvested, and I even got to be the shepherdess one time. Oh. And so since I was in Italy, I got to, to join with this family in all their wonderful food traditions and some of their more interesting ones, too. So this is one of those. Um, one night I was, I was out driving with one of the cousins named Giorgio, and we were going on this long, windy, dark road up to the next town. And all of a sudden Giorgio slams on the brakes, throws the car into reverse, and he says, shoot, we missed it. And I'm sitting there in the, in the passenger seat saying, what? We missed what? And all of a sudden he accelerates backwards and he accelerates forward again and makes another go at something, and it got away again. And what it was was a porcupine, porcospino. And Giorgio starts telling me uh, about, oh, it's such a shame we missed it. The porcupine has the tastiest, most succulent meat around. Can't believe we missed it. What a shame. And now I'm thinking in my head, yeah, what a shame. You know, kind of relieved I got out of that. They actually cook up their roadkill. And I was about to find out. So we went home, and we, we kind of regaled the, the whole family with stories of the porcupine that, that, that got away. And they all started to tell me about, you know, the last time they hit a porcupine, it was the best stew they ever made, and so forth. Well, the very next night, who should come over but another set of cousins, and they're carrying with them a big white pail, and inside of it, because we'd been talking about this very topic the night before, they went out searching for porcupines, ran one down, and they brought this big, bloody, dead porcupine in this pail over, over to our house. And uh, kind of the grandmother and the family despiked it and did whatever she had to do and, and cooked it up in a stew. Wow. So, uh, so I, I tried it. And? And uh, it really wasn't the best thing I'd ever had, I have to be honest there. Was it like real gamey or real fatty or what? It was just real tough. Tough. Tough porcupine. And uh, I found out later why. I was talking with uh, the, the man I was closest with in the family that, that we spoke most frequently. He said, what would you think of the porcupine? And I said, well, you know, it was, it was okay. I, yeah, I prefer some of the other new foods I've tried with you guys. So, oh, shoot. You know, we left that house uh, after the next day to go up to the land and work on the land. He said, shoot, we should have stayed in town for another day. That was the day that we ate the part in the stew. That's the part that got ran over by the car. Oh, so that got the toughest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Do you think this is uh, just a, they're pulling your leg as a tourist? They, they very well could have been, I but I'm going to so. believe it. All right. I've had some great memories just in Sicily, in the agriturismos, in the farmhouses that welcomed the guests. Uh-huh. And they just, the food blew me away. So whether it's a roadkill or not, I think they're great cooks down there. I, sh- I, I certainly agree. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. And just this image of you and your, your porcupine, I don't know what I can, I can do that. <laughs> hope they didn't hand out toothpicks. No, no. Porcupine <laughs> toothpicks. Oh, yeah, we could have done that, couldn't we? Like uh, hors d'oeuvres or something? All right, Leah, give us the next report next time we go to Sicily on, on those okay, porcupines. Okay, thanks. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. We got Vicki on the line from Gig Harbor in Washington. Hi, Vicki. Well, hi, Rick. Say, listen, my 16-year-old daughter and I had a great trip last summer for about a month, and we fell in love with Paris. And we're looking for a good car 
home base near Paris, where we could see the outskirts of Paris this trip. A good car home base. What do you mean by that? A place where if we rented a car this time, instead of going by uh, gear rail, I see. You know, where would be an economical place that we could still get into the city easily, but uh, also travel around to Versailles and other places throughout the country, go to Normandy. You know, I question whether you want to have a car, um, mm-hmm. Vicky, for traveling around Paris, because all of the transportation works from a hub in Paris, and it goes out very conveniently. From Paris, you can go to Versailles, you can go to Chantilly, you can go to Chartres, uh, you can go to Fontainebleau, all, uh, you can go to Disneyland if you're so inclined, you can go out to Rouen, you can go to Rennes. All of these great sites are within about an hour by train from Paris. Uh, you, of course, you're going to have to pay Parisian prices for hotels, but to have a car is going to be very time-consuming because Paris is huge, and it's surrounded by a periphery, they call it, a big ring freeway. And you'll have to drive around the city. You'll be in uh, congestion traffic every time you go, and I don't think it makes any sense. Now, how long do you have for your side-tripping or your exploring by car? Well, we could have up to two weeks. Okay, well, that's plenty of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, remember, it's you know the the freeways are great. The distances are relatively small. I would take a loop through Normandy and Brittany and down to the Loire Valley and uh, back to Paris. Uh, the Loire is certainly a great place to have a home base. I, I like to home base in Amboise, the same place that uh, Leonardo da Vinci called home for, mm-hmm. for his last years. And from there, you could visit all the chateaux in the region. In the Normandy area, Bayeux is a beautiful town. And from there, you're just a stone's throw from the D-Day beach landings. And you got uh, nearby, you got Mont Saint-Michel. You got the wonderful World War II uh, D-Day landings museum in Cannes. You got the home of the Impressionist movement in Anfleur. And you got uh, just beautiful tooling around the countryside there by car. And the Loire Valley and Normandy are places where you'll really be glad you had a car for the mobility that it offers. That sounds wonderful. Is there any place we shouldn't miss, especially for my teenage daughter? She loves history. You know, she might want to take the... My son was just in Paris. He's 18. Mm -hmm. He went on his own. And a highlight for him was the bike tours. It's called FET. I think we did that. It was a blast. Isn't we went f- on the nighttime one. Oh, great. It was wonderful. Is there anything else like that going on in another place in France that you know about? Um, not that specifically, but it's fun to rent bikes on the Loire Valley. You can bike to various oh. chateaux on the Loire. That's that popular. wonderful. You know what I think? If your daughter likes history, here is a very good tip. In Bayeux, that's the first real town that was liberated in the Normandy D-Day landing sites. Bayeux is a wonderful town in its own right. It's got the famous uh, Bayeux Tapestry, perfect example of uh, Normandy culture. And from there, your 15-minute drive from all the great sites of Normandy uh, beach landings, the D-Day scene. You can take a minibus tour with a man who uh, has a company there based in Bayeux, and he uh, takes six or seven people out on his minibus for the day. It's English only. He's got a wonderful way of making World War II history meaningful and come to life. And that would be a real good day for your daughter if she's interested in history. That sounds wonderful. I can't wait to leave. Oh, there's so much to see and do. (laughs) That's great. And you're lucky you're blessed to have an 16-year-old daughter that wants to travel with you and loves history. I most certainly am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, enjoy that. Thank you, Rick. (laughs) Nice to have you call. Thank you. Thanks. A sabbatical is a different way to travel from the usual extended vacation. We'll explore the value of taking a sabbatical, why employers, schools, and churches figure it's a good investment, and how people make the most out of a thoughtful pause in their busy lives. It's coming up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And you know, sometimes we all need a sabbatical. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever met somebody who's going on a sabbatical? Who gets to go on a sabbatical? Why? What, what, what is this sabbatical thing, you know? We live in a progressively faster and faster world, and sometimes recreation needs to mean recreation, recreation, renewal, travel, research, freshen up our outlook. Uh, and, uh, you know, for centuries, there's been a tradition in churches and in academia to give hardworking pastors and professors a chance to get away and, and, and recharge. And today, I want to I explore this notion of the sabbatical. And I've got with me a pastor, and I've got a professor, and we've got some people on the lines, and uh, uh, we're going to explore a different kind of travel. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was talking to people about sabbaticals, and there's lots of different uses of sabbaticals. Um, law firms actually have a sabbatical uh, in order to uh, get rid of a lawyer so their clients have to get used to another lawyer so that they're not uh, reliant on one lawyer. Uh, that's an interesting reason to give a guy a break. Big corporations offer sabbaticals. IBM and Microsoft have long had a policy for giving their people a sabbatical break. In the 1990s, sabbaticals were pretty common for employee retention, and uh, these days, less so. People are given portable 401ks, and retention's less valued as people hop around from job to job. Um, But uh, I know for uh, pastors and professors, sabbatical is still a major part of their employment. I've got with me today uh, my pastor, Mark Raytan, who's the pastor at Trinity uh, Lutheran Church in Linwood, Washington, and Mark took off for, uh, like, seems like a six months or something last it, year. It was. And uh, I want to talk to Mark about what this sabbatical is all about. Pastor Mark, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. What was your sabbatical? Where'd you go? Uh, how long was it? It was six months, but it had been in the in the works for several years. In fact, as I was thinking about it now, um, when I was a pastor in Arizona over a decade ago, I worked really hard to uh, help congregations throughout that whole synod um, understand the importance of sabbaticals and get them as policies in their congregations. So um, it was really laying the groundwork for a sabbatical that I then took. And the sabbatical evolved over a period of time as I began to realize that it was going to be possible for me to step away. We we got the sabbatical policy in place at Trinity, and what happened is that, and it's kind of a long, uh, a bit of a long story, but I ended up um, uh, going to Germany. Uh, and going to Wittenberg, and uh, because when I had traveled about a year prior to that, I had discovered about an English ministry, and so I went back to to participate Wittenberg, in that. Wittenberg, uh, important yeah. for Lutherans, because that's yeah. where Martin Luther was. And yeah. uh, so there's an English language uh, seminary at Wittenberg well, that you as an American pastor would... It's a, it's a, uh, there's a, there's a center there, the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has a center there, but there was an English preaching ministry there, and the people that were attending were really wanting more in-depth kind of study of the basics of the faith. So I went there to develop a uh, teaching ministry that would go along with this preaching ministry in English. In English in Germany? And in Germany. Okay, yeah. that was one part of your sabbatical, and yeah. then what were the other elements? It, it, got, it got a little bit more interesting as we went along, because I I then uh, went to the Olympics and was invited by the coach of the United States softball team. Oh, uh, these were the Olympics in Athens. In the Olympics right. in Athens in 2004. Right. And uh, and he invited me to be the chaplain and provide some spiritual care for all the people that had uh, his team and the coaches and families. Right. And the reason that I knew him so well is because he was my daughter's coach at the University of Arizona. And uh, he had been of great support to us after uh-huh. our daughter tragically died in 97. And um, and now he was asking me to go along and provide this uh, opportunity for his players. The thing that we didn't know that would happen is that just before the Olympics, his wife died of a brain aneurysm. And I came back then from Germany before the Olympics to speak at the memorial service to be with him and with the whole team, then met them at the Olympics in Athens and um, functioned as a spiritual caregiver. So it took on another whole dimension. That sounds like you were working. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, that not much of a sabbatical, uh, really. It was. It was a lot of uh, enjoyment to be with the team okay. and to watch yeah. the games and. And then the last it. part of your sabbatical. And then the last part was to go to Tanzania and to uh, teach at a school uh, that trains lay evangelists uh, for the church. They're really the pastors of churches because most pastors serve many, many congregations. So I went there to teach pastoral caregiving, and then while I was there, they asked me if I would also lead seminars for HIV/AIDS workers huh. that work for the church. So I did that, and that led to led to contacts with children and orphans and widows that uh, really changed my life. Well, it sounds like for this, and this is a six-month period, basically. Six months, yeah. It sounds to me like it wasn't really a break, but it was a change of venue and a change of uh, working environment. 
Yeah, people were concerned when when they saw my plan that I was that it, that it wasn't really a rest. And, right. But I really have an understanding of sabbatical that it's it's not to be a vacation. It's it's uh, really an opportunity to do the things that when you're in the normal working day, you right. really don't have an opportunity to do. So okay, but let's talk practicalities. Right. I'm on the church uh, budget board, and we don't have a lot of money. And here's our pastor he wants to take off for six months. Uh, yeah. Sell me on it. Well, we had developed the policy that we could do three months to six months of sabbatical at full pay. And we had a large enough staff so that that really became possible so that other people could fill in. But what really made it possible uh, financially was the, the Lilly grant that I received. So there's an organization uh, in the Lutheran Church that ha- makes money available to Well, it's not in the Lutheran Church. It's a it's Lilly just... grant from the Lilly Foundation okay. that has uh, decided that it's so important for pastors to have renewal opportunities that, that they've made millions of dollars available. And uh, pastors can apply for that Lilly grant up to uh, $45,000 to to take a sabbatical. And so that's a gift that came to Trinity so that I could take the sabbatical. So it helped pay for my expenses as well as help pay for supply while I was gone. Now, the Lutheran Church has a policy where, understand, you get a three-month basically paid sabbatical every after six years, and then every seven years you get another three-month break. Is that is that unusual among Protestant church? Well, I don't. I don't think most congregations probably have that in their in right. their call process. Okay. Um, I think most congregations are are not up to speed on that. I think the ELCA probably encourages congregations to do that, I but see. I think a lot of congregations don't. Now, sabbatical does that come from? That must come from the word Sabbath, right? Right. I mean, it comes from that root word where God worked and and created and then God rested. And uh, that one in seven kind of rest is what we're called to. Uh, but when you read about Sabbath in the biblical story, the, the Exodus account of the Sabbath talks about rest, but the Deuteronomy account talks about worship. And then when Jesus talks about it, he talks about it in terms of opportunity to serve and to help particularly people who are who are uh, left out. And, and So that's how you saw your Sabbath-like yeah. so sabbatical. I define my Sabbath based on what I understood in the Scripture, where I could rest, but rest really in prayer and have focused time for worship, and then significant time to serve in a, in a world where I didn't have opportunity to serve some of the most suffering people, and that really uh, was a powerful experience when I was in Africa. So this is two years later. Did it have a la- how did it did it did it have a positive impact on your ability to go back to work here in Seattle area? Yeah, it was a renewing, but it connected me now with other parts of the world, particularly with Africa. I mean, we've we've embraced some orphans there that Elaine and I have kind of adopted as our children. So you knew we about this homes. problem, but having not been there, it was hard to really get vivid about it, huh? I mean, you you read data that there's 14 million children that are now orphaned in Africa because of the AIDS epidemic. So you read that, but when you get there, and hmm. it's just uh, well, it's a, just heart wrenching. So there's a powerful. Um, Byproduct or a product of your of your time away. I've we, been back. I've been back to be with these children and be with the organization that I support in the school where I taught. I've been back. I'm going back again this summer. Um, I've got the children now in boarding schools. We've built homes. I've told stories here. People have embraced the stories. We've built homes, helped families. Um, it's, it's many, so, many things have happened. You know, the, the impact of travel, whether you're going as a pastor on a sabbatical or, or just anybody to get away and better understand the world, it, you right. can't underestimate that. We've got Renee on the line in, in Omaha, Nebraska. Hi, Renee. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. Uh, what are your thoughts about a sabbatical? Uh, I think they're fabulous. Uh, they're wonderful. I also had a Lily Grant as a local church pastor, hmm. and uh, it was just life-changing. How so? Well, it was the first time I'd ever traveled abroad, and uh, I spent the first part of my sabbatical six weeks traveling in, um, primarily in the U.K. with a little bit of time in France, and was primarily concentrating on worship. And everything, particularly in Nebraska, is still pretty new and raw compared to Europe, and I was just struck over and over with worshiping in a place where people had worshipped for a thousand or more years. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah, I mean, I can just think of Omaha, I mean, a, a nice church there, but you go to, I, I see from your email, you went to the Cathedral in Bath, you went to Chartres, you went to yeah. Iona. Tell us about uh, your, your, your uh, impressions from the Cathedral in Bath and, and the beautiful, the greatest Gothic uh, cathedral, I think, in, in some ways in all of Europe at Chartres, and that magical island, Iona. 
Oh, well, Chart, I went to Chart because I had heard so much wonderful things about it being such a beautiful cathedral, and it was just breathtaking. But I also happened to be there on a Friday, which is the day that they have the labyrinth uncovered, oh. and and walked the labyrinth. And that was, I had, you know, I am, even though I'm a pastor, I'm pretty rational, and so I wasn't prepared for how blown away I would be by that experience. It was it was an experience. Well, now, let's, that, I've been there, but I've been there when all the chairs are set up because it wasn't yeah. Tuesday or whatever, and it's a, a labyrinth that's sort of in the tiles on the floor of the church, right? right. So what it, what yeah. could be magical about that? Um, well, you you walk magic. it, you trace it? Well, you walk the labyrinth. It's an 11-circuit labyrinth, and I, I guess it is one of those things that words escape. Just walking the labyrinth in a very prayerful, meditative way, really opened up some things for me spiritually to the point that since I have come back, I've gotten very interested in labyrinth and huh. trained as a labyrinth facilitator and use it as a spiritual guide, and um, huh. both for myself and for others often. And to know that for 800 years, people have been meditating and walking on that labyrinth. Right, right. And, and, that, and I think it was part of it that it was in that space, in that amazing, beautiful space. But I have carried that experience with me and found similar experiences walking other labyrinths. I'm talking uh, with my pastor, Mark, from uh, Trinity Lutheran Church in Linwood, and Renee's on the line, who's a pastor in Omaha, Nebraska. Renee, uh-huh. when you were in Chart, did you get a, a lecture from Malcolm Miller? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't, and I hope to go back sometime. He is, and he, him and his, you know, he's just like the man to get you all excited about Gothic, right. and, and, and he is sort of, uh, he's moved into Chartres Cathedral just to share the wonders of Gothic, and it's mm-hmm. certainly not the Dark Ages, it's the High Middle Ages. You also went to Iona, and Iona has a powerful um, uh, spiritual feeling about it, and right. you hear about these islands on the west of Scotland that they would be sort of mystical and, and drenched in sort of um, special light and everything, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I was a little skeptical, and I went there, and, and I was really touched by that place. What was right. your experience in Iona? Oh, exactly the same. In fact, I leave on my next sabbatical two months from today, and I'm going back to Iona mm. uh, because it was it was just an amazing place. You may remember from your time there that George McLeod, the founder of the modern Iona community, talks about it as a thin place where the dividing line between heaven and earth is very thin. And that is really true, and it's wow. true certainly in the Abbey, but it's kind of suffused in the whole island. Suffused is a good word for Iona. The whole island has this spirituality, and that's, I understand, where the Irish monks came and, and brought Christianity to uh, northern Britain. Right. St. Columba landed there and was it the 6th century, 5th century? I kind of lost track. A long right, time ago. A long, long time ago. And again, you have that amazing sense that in one way or another, this has been a sacred place. Now, did for, um, Renee, did your sabbatical help you to get to, to sort of slow down after fast-paced American lifestyles and so on? Was that a part of it at all? Well, you know, one of the learnings was, and I don't know if your pastor was the same way, I, I kind of replicated in my first sabbatical all of my faults back here, which is overscheduling and overdoing. And now that I'm planning my second sabbatical, I'm, I'm not doing that. It's, it's a much more leisurely pace. I came back incredibly renewed in terms of my um, spiritual life and very renewed with lots and lots of ide- new ideas for ministry, but not as physically rested as I needed to be because I kind of over overscheduled myself and did some, some, some reflection on that and how that is um, a chronic problem for me, as it is for many pastors. Yeah, I, I I didn't have that experience. I although my sabbatical seemed busy in terms of what what we had planned. Uh, each place we were, I was with my wife throughout most of the mm-hmm. time, and uh, we had as I as I look back on that time, it was so restful mm-hmm. and so renewing for for both of us to be together in that time. And in when we got to Africa. I mean, what a what a different place. I mean, I had to learn to gear down. I mean, I would right. stand on the, I could stand on the street corner for three hours waiting for somebody to come that they promised <laughs> me when they'd come, and and they never thought anything of it. And I had to I had to wake up and say, you know, you got to do this different. I mean, you know, that's interesting. You're both commenting on this uh, 
does it does it exhaust you? Does it, it supercharge you or whatever? When I'm in Europe or when I'm traveling, I'm working as hard as ever, but I'm focused on one thing. And consequently, mm-hmm. I don't find it frazzles mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. It energizes me because I'm able to focus just on what I'm doing. And I'm not a very good multitasker when I'm in Europe. I'm a great multitasker here. Yeah. But when I get away, it's still productive, but it's one focus. Renee, when you got back, did your... Uh, do you think your congregation felt it was a worthwhile investment to give you that break? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, as I said, I was concentrating on worship, both um, Iona worship and and uh, some other experiences of worship as well. As, and when I, the other half was looking at worship experiences in churches here in the United States, and that was prior to our launching a new kind of worship service in our church. So it was immensely helpful All right. in that respect. Well, thanks, Renee, from Omaha for your call. Thank you very much. Best nice wishes uh, planning okay. your next sabbatical. Um, yeah, Pastor Mark, um, what's the what's the philosophy on communication? When you're away, should you be really away, or do you stay in touch and email your congregation and all this? Well, uh, it's important to have boundaries and to really be away. I mean, to not be tied in so you're not getting issues that are coming at you. But it was also really important, I think, for me to write a letter back to the congregation, and I and and not just once in a while, but I did it in a disciplined way. I. I wrote back so that every Sunday morning they had a letter and some pictures. And that was a great discipline for me to keep them informed. And that that helped them to be a part of the experience. When I got back, that was the one thing that person after person said to me they so appreciated. In fact, they'd go into homes of elderly people, shut-in people, and they saved them. And they read them over and over and over oh, again. Yes. And then they were able to live it with me and experience it with me and share it with me. It it really gave them a sense of ownership. Yeah, it was it was very, very important. And it was a simple discipline for me. Now, it got to be a little challenging in Africa because I wasn't always at email places. Right. And I had to, sometimes I had to do two at once. And because uh, I was 30, 40, 50 miles away from, from hmm. being able to get on the internet uh, lots of times. And, uh, but I took lots and lots of pictures and then I would, I would attach them to the email and then they'd show them on the screens in the sanctuary and they really felt a part of it. We got an email from Bob in Ontario who's been a pastor for 22 years and he reports the best part about a sabbatical is it gets you away from the phone, newspaper, Mm -hmm. internet, and all the connections to the demanding life at home. The -hmm. disconnection from the everyday allows your mind to be creative and to see life from a different perspective. You return to your work re-energized for the new challenges ahead and with a new outlook on life. Mm -hmm. So he's had a thoughtful sabbatical. Paul in Olympia writes, I'm in my uh, 36th year as a Lutheran pastor, experienced only my second three-month sabbatical, including two weeks of an organized spiritual journey through India. Perhaps it was counterproductive because the great pleasures of this time away convinced him to retire early. Yeah, well, (laughs) I can understand that. I mean, I appreciate it. Coming up, we'll broaden our view of a sabbatical to consider the academic world on Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the idea of sabbaticals today with Pastor Mark Rayton from Trinity Lutheran Church in Linwood, Washington. If you'd like to give us a ring, our phone number is 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We've been talking about pastoral sabbaticals, but the other half of this is professors taking a sabbatical. And we've got on the line Dr. Kempton Hewitt, who's a professor at uh, the Methodist Theological School in Ohio. Uh, Dr. Hewitt, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be here, Rick. Yeah, now you've heard us talking about pastors taking a break. You're a professor, um, and I understand that in academia, it's pretty much, uh, is it still pretty much a standard thing that universities uh, assume that their professors every once in a while should get out of town and go someplace different and freshen up? Yeah, absolutely. It's written usually into bylaws and faculty manuals and that kind of thing. And uh, typically, uh, you have to apply and make a case for your sabbatical. And that wouldn't be a whole lot different than that wonderful Lilly program that uh, I've been hearing the pastors talk about. 
And sometimes that includes some uh, some assistance, and sometimes it's necessary to make applications for uh, grants that will enable travel. Now, have you actually taken a sabbatical on your own? Yeah, I certainly have. And back when I was beginning my training, uh, when I when I finished my advanced degree at Yale University, uh, fortunately I married a woman who uh, loves to travel, and uh, we agreed that I would go to Europe to uh, do my doctoral studies. And that was an interesting experience because that really um, is the idea of expanding your perspective. And I ended up at a British university, and as a part of my doctoral program, they, they came to me and said, now we do understand that you have to uh, broaden your perspective even from here, and we want you to go to a German-speaking university and see how they do it. And so my whole career started out with uh, getting used to the idea that you really had to keep refreshing and then broadening your perspective from uh, you know the different ways that different cultures uh, begin to uh, approach even highly technical things. You know, you could be a very well-educated person, but if you never got out of town and saw the re- where the rest of the world lived, you wouldn't really be that educated in a in a certain in a certain uh, way. Well, I think that's right, and uh, it nowadays, of course, it's uh, it's very expensive, and we've been talking right. about that. That that is that is a complication, but yeah. it certainly is. Well, that's the, why these, uh, uh, that's sort of an enlightened thing. This Lilia Foundation that it gives this yeah. money for this purpose. No. You know, um, this value of travel to me, it's just it's nothing new. I'm fascinated with the fact that Mohammed, fifteen hundred years ago, said, "Don't tell me how educated you are. Tell me how much you've traveled." Yeah, and worked into the whole. Islamic religious values, one of the pillars of Islam, I think, is to go to Mecca once in your life. Mm-hmm. And what that really was, according to my um, modern Islamic friends that tell me about this, is it's just a way, an excuse for people to get out and travel. And uh, modern people even interpret that. I don't know if it's agreed upon by all the imams and so on, but just to travel. They don't need to go to Mecca. They just got to go somewhere different because it, it, it broadens your perspective. Yep, that's exactly right. And I, I, I went to university in, in Switzerland uh, from England, and uh, once I dropped into that culture, I was in uh, a continental culture, and I was just totally astounded at how different the approach was to my subject just uh, hmm. by traveling a few hundred miles. I love that idea. You know, I'm I'm pretty well trained in music, and I was pretty self-assured about what music's all about. There's major, there's minor, there's cut time, three, four time, waltz time. I went to India, and I met classical musicians who knew nothing about the modes and about the meter. And what sounded like just noise to me from America, I was in India surrounded by that, uh, respecting a different musical tradition, and it humbled me. Yep. And, and that's what travel can do. It, it cuts away your self-assuredness. Yeah, I, I, when I went to Africa, I thought for sure that it would be very informal and very, I mean, I looked at some of the churches and they're just huts, and I thought it would be a very informal experience. And when I got there, they did not want me to preach anywhere unless I wore a collar, and they would not permit me to serve Holy Communion unless I wore an alb. Huh. I didn't bring a collar or an all, but I mean, I thought, I mean, here in the America, everybody's wanting to be more informal, and there's all this conversation and pressure to do that. And there, they live in the, they're in this basic kind of situation, and everything is very, very high church yeah. and very formal. I mean, I was in huts, and everything is done absolutely wow. according to Wow, high the, church I, and mm-hmm. in huts. Yep. So that would be a surprise. Well, that, that, that was my experience. Now, now later in, in life, I had a, I had a, a two or three sabbaticals as an academic, one of those was when I was involved in uh, theological education in the Southwest. We're beginning to get very serious about the need to uh, train folks who were bilingual and bicultural. So I took a sabbatical. In fact, my whole family lived in Mexico while I took Spanish so I could come back and teach my subject in Spanish. That was also my experience there. I, I was the standard. I always thought of Mexicans as being kind of a loose uh, an open uh, kind of approach, but I was amazed to to find out how uh, detailed they are in attending to things like common courtesies, and it was refreshing to kind of have an old-world perspective. By the way, I think that's where uh, my whole family got used to the idea of traveling, because my, hmm. my kids went to school in Mexico, and that was the beginning of their being broadened in their education, and eventually hmm. when they were in college, they both went to university in other countries. So when you were sent to Mexico to learn Spanish, did your university call that a sabbatical? Yeah, absolutely. It was an applied uh, sabbatical, and uh, there was a fund available. I applied for that. And uh, the advantage of that was when I came back, I began teaching my subject in Spanish, and that way uh, students could sort of get their coursework while perfecting their Spanish in order to be able to go out and to to serve in, in two languages and two cultures. And uh, that was a that was a marvelous experience, and from that time on, 
Then I began taking students with me, and just returned, in fact, from a seminar in Mexico with students. And so for about the last 30 years, I've been taking students abroad to have these cross-cultural experiences. And uh, trying to take my own medicine, too, my wife and I just were appointed to teach at a new uh, theological graduate school in Moscow, Russia. So we just returned from uh, voluntary teaching uh, there. And that's just been the ongoing pattern for... Uh, our whole married life. Hey, Dr. Hewitt, I'm, I'm talking, by the way, with Dr. Kempton Hewitt. He's a professor at the uh, Methodist Theological School in Ohio. We, we know that this is sort of a long-established um, tradition for universities to pay for their professors to go travel in order to uh, take a sabbatical leave and, and refresh and recharge. Is that trend just as strong now as it always has been, or would you say there's a new practical reality age where that just doesn't float anymore? Yeah, I think it doesn't happen as much. It used to be, for instance, that when I first entered uh, teaching at graduate level, uh, every professor that had a sabbatical planned uh, on a foreign or an overseas kind of experience, and uh, they would take their families with them, and the whole thing would be uh, you know, financed in various yeah. ways. But as the practical realities begin to come in, that, that happens uh, less and less, okay. unfortunately. I think the gentility of our society is eroding over time. Yeah, I, I don't think it's possible um, to actually a- acquire a totally new cultural perspective or learn to ask questions that are different from the ones you usually ask without actually immersing yourself in, mm. in the culture and its language. I, we haven't talked about that, but, of course, I think that's the uh, the critical thing is to make an attempt to learn via the language of um, whoever you are in the midst of. Do you think, if you were to psychoanalyze our society, it always occurs to me kind of strange that I thought Clinton's, President Clinton's time at, in England going to school was almost a negative because people thought he was getting foreign influence. Uh, do you think today there's less uh, enthusiasm for sending professors on sabbatical because the kind of open-mindedness is less welcome? Well, I, I wonder about that. I, I want to be very careful about not being, uh, you know, one of the senior cynical faculty, but uh, I, I, would, I would have to say that in some cases I am somewhat concerned about uh, a perspective that isn't maybe as deep and wide as it, as it ought to be. Although, one of the things that's happened is that faculties have been diversified by bringing people from different cultures onto the faculty in greater numbers than we once did, and that, that does enrich the, uh, the academic community a great bit. Uh, uh, professor, I, th- I thought that uh, a lot of uh, people in the academic world put pressure on their staff to take sabbaticals in order to do, do research and then publish and things like that. And I saw that as more what they do rather than travel and experience other cultures. Well, I think, I think that that's absolutely right. The productivity is very, very important. But right. on the other hand, some of the the really important new, fresh understandings have come, particularly out of uh, Europe. And it used to be that uh, people in my in my field would absolutely have to be in touch and be familiar with research going on, uh, particularly in, in Germany, also France and England, and to a lesser degree, the Scandinavian countries. That has always been um, an important value. And I think that's that's still the case. I mean, the precision of German academic and French academic study is really uh, something that uh, simply has to still be attended to in some way. So going there and experiencing it and sitting in those classrooms and learning to ask questions the way they ask them and being held to their standards is one of the ways of guaranteeing that we're not slipping in, uh, in our approaches. Boy, that's important. Uh, we've got another professor on the line from Wilmington, North Carolina. Carol, are you there? Hi, how are you doing? Great, thanks uh, Thanks for your call. What are your thoughts on all this idea of professors traveling and sabbaticals and well, so on? Well, uh, first of all, I'll say that sabbaticals aren't as frequent as they used to be, and they're not by any means every seven years. Well, the one that was funded by the university for me was 1992, and then it wasn't until 2003 that I got another, and that one was not funded by the university. I got a grant from the Sons of Norway Lodge. I went to retrace my Norwegian roots. Uh, my grandparents were immigrants, and I was gathering material to do a one-person show. Well, while I was there in Norway, I came across tango dancing, Argentine tango dancing, which is very big in Oslo. And that took me to Argentina, and that's where I have become a, a tango addict. So <laughs> my work in the theater, which is my field, was done in Norway, 
But then I took up the hobby of uh, Argentine tango dancing as a result of that time I spent in Norway. And I also have improved my Spanish, so uh, I help out here in uh, Wilmington with people who need help learning English, and uh, I can translate pretty well now. So um, that sabbatical led to a whole new life for me. So there's a risk dancing in, and yeah. translating. There's a risk there that you might find a new passion and, uh, at a minimum, give your life uh, extra uh, for sort of facets and dimensions. It's uh, definitely happened. You know, we had we had David uh, from Shoreline in Washington email us, and he said, uh, sabbaticals are not just for pastors and professors. I had an amazing sabbatical experience in Peru last year that included working at Mother Teresa's outfit in Lima, teaching English computer skills uh, to abused maids, working with Sister Jackie in Villa Salvador and handing out pamphlets from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on what really happened during the Shining Path movement in the 1980s and early 1990s in Peru to the upper middle class Peruvians who uh, who buried their heads in the sand. Uh, point is, the time spent there was uh, has recharged his spiritual batteries and reshaped his views on the world. So, you know, I think that's a, a nice way we could sort of wrap things up. We've been talking about pastors and professors, but anybody can take a sabbatical, I think. And uh, any tips uh, here about just how a a normal uh, parishioner or a normal student or, or, or just anybody could go over there and, and have more than a sightseeing experience, but actually a sabbatical. Get involved in an activity that, that people do, such as tango dancing. Also get involved with helping somehow. It, it just isn't fair to go down and just enjoy their resources. Mm-hmm. We tango dancers, uh, some of us belong to an organization called Ayuda Ya, uh, Help Now, basically, is what it means, uh-huh. for helping to feed the um, children in... Buenos Aires who are hungry. Uh, unfortunately, with their economic crisis, there are quite a few homeless and hungry people there now. Okay, so get involved and find out a way to actually help. And uh, uh, Dr. Hewitt, did you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think that's exactly right. And I, I've run across, uh, over the years, uh, really interesting organizations. One in Russia I ran across, run by an interesting couple. And all they ask is that people come over to a language camp and uh, hold English language conversations with Russians in a kind of a, a camping environment. Um, uh, others I've, I've run into are exchanges of family visits and that kind of thing. And I think uh, that the way to do that is a people-to-people approach, where you, you find an organization that has a good reputation, link up with them, and then mm-hmm. go and have a direct contact in a, in a helping role and in a sharing role and, and come back with a changed perspective and, and not just uh, stay in a hotel and take a bus tour. I think yeah. that's a powerful uh, opportunity to change your perspective. Carol from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, thanks for your call. Thank you, and thanks for your great book on Scandinavia. It's the best guide to it. Oh, thanks. Well, continued happy travels to you. Pastor Mark, uh, do you have any thoughts about um, you know people other than pastors and professors enjoying the, the benefits yeah. of a sabbatical? In, in fact, I, th- I think in congregational life it can be a part of the ministry of a congregation that they encourage their members to reach out to people in other cultures. At Trinity, we've encouraged people to go and do service in Mexico, and now we're connecting with, we want to be connected with every continent in the world, mm-hmm. and encourage people to to spend time to go there and serve and to learn. And that is, uh, the people that have done that come back renewed, enthused, uh, changed. I felt it. At uh, church, we've got 15, yeah. 20 people go down there to build yeah. a house in Mexico, yeah. and they Changes come back. Their lives. The whole congregation is, is caught up in the enthusiasm. And, and that's, that. that's a sabbatical experience. That's a Sabbath experience. That's an experience where they go, and they can rest, and they can pray, and they can focus, and they can serve, and they come back renewed. So they could have gone yeah. to Mazatlan and laid on the beach and had some nice shrimp, and yeah, that's we, fun. We or people, they could have been renewed. Yeah, yeah we get people who, who, who spend their own money and take their vacation time and go this because they've discovered how powerful it is. So it isn't, it isn't vacation, but it but is But they real. choose. They get one or two weeks off a year, and they yeah, choose to spend choose that it. having a sabbatical experience. Yeah. Wow. It's a great thing. Pastor Mark Reitan uh, from Trinity Lutheran Church in Linwood, thank you so much for uh, yeah, thanks, sharing sir. with us an insight and uh, how sabbaticals are a worthwhile thing for pastors, for professors, and for all of us. And Dr. Kempton Hewitt in Ohio, thank you for your help. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Rick. All right. Uh, We'll continue to happy travels and uh, thoughtful, valuable sabbaticals to both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks. There are many reasons people travel overseas, and sometimes the result can be life-changing. In 1938, a popular novelty song of the day depicted the aspirations of one solo traveler. Here is Chicago-based singer Spider Saloff with the story of The Weekend of a Private Secretary. 
I went to Havana on one of those cruises for forty-nine fifty to spend a few days. I went to Havana to look at the natives and study their customs. Their primitive ways. While searching for some local color, I came across this Cuban gent, and he was such a big sensation. I forgot the population. He showed me the city. He taught me the customs. My trip to Havana. Was quite a success. We had Bacardi's. I forgot the clock. We were so tardy in returning to the dock. Though I delayed it, even dropped my shawl. The Cuban made it when they made the final call. Darn it all! Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. I'm back at the office. I'm punching the time clock. And you can bet my mind is not on my work. Instead of Bacardi's, I'm ordering Bromos. Instead of the Cuban, I'm stuck with this jerk. The other girls can go to Europe and marry into royalty, and they can have an Earl or Pasha or a gent with lots of cashia. But when I get married and settle in Brooklyn, he might be a slicker, he might be a hicker, a Reuben, but you can bet he'll be a Cuban. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.